Hello and welcome. This is Being Human. I'm Jo Frost and in this episode, my co-host Peter Linus and I are chatting with leading literary critic, author, social media influencer and campaigner, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. Just before the summer, we caught up with Karen over Zoom. We discussed pro-life campaigning, shaping culture, the gift of fiction and how to listen well. I do hope you enjoy this. So we just always love to remind people we're in the Being Human podcast and project. We want to see the intersection of the God story, the true, the good, the beautiful story of God in this world and the cultural story. And so it's really exciting for us to be able to welcome Karen Swallow prior to the show. Welcome, Karen. Hello. It's good to be with you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. For those who don't know, we're both excited to have you here because we've come across you in different spaces engaging in the culture. That's where we'd love to get uh, to is conversations around that and to chat about that. I guess for some people in the UK, they may not know you uh, in quite the same way as we do. They might not have heard of you. So I know you're a professor. I know you're now uh, at the Baptist Seminary down at Southeast Baptist. Am I right in that? Southern Eastern. Southern Southeast. Southeastern. Um, and um, you've written a number of books and your passion is around literature. But tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I grew up uh, in a Christian home and became a Christian as a child um, and went on to, you know, to be educated in secular environments, to develop my love of literature, went into a PhD program, all this time sort of being a Christian and uh, pursuing the intellectual life and the literary life, but um, not really knowing how to integrate those until really near the end of my PhD program. And so... It was just, you know, it was just that was a big part of my life is not being able to know how to how to be a Christian and think as a Christian, um, apart from just the moral the moral issues that were all taught and the Bible stories were all taught. Um, and I actually made my sort of uh, debut as a public person engaging in the culture uh, while I was in grad school um, protesting abortion at abortion clinics. Uh, you can imagine that makes you very popular at a state university in the English department. Um, but that that was and that was the that was well before the age of social media. And you know that was a long time ago. I went on to, be, to become an English professor, have been one for over two decades, um, but have always just kind of seen my love of literature as a reflection of my desire to to be a faithful Christian and to change the world. Um, and in some way they just sort of all fit together. And I'm, I don't know, maybe we can figure out how on this during this hour. <laughs> so I've got two things that you sprung out from what you said. And then Joe, I'm sure we'll want to jump in. I mean, one was around your engagement in the pro-life. And I read a bit about that because that's one of the reasons that I uh, came across you because we were engaged in some work here in Northern Ireland. So I'd love to understand a bit more about how you got into that, what drove you towards that initially, and particularly the kind of public face of that. It was actually just um, my, I went to a little tiny church uh, while I was in grad school. My husband and I um, had been newly married and a crisis pregnancy center from our community came and gave a presentation. And I was just instantly converted to the pro-life position. I had never really been thought about it that much. And so, you know, I have 10 years in as kind of an activist on the streets um, fighting abortion. And I don't do that now, um, but I still it remains a passion of mine that I that I write about and speak about and um, 
still hope to, to see change in our country and in the world. And I guess for some people who are listening or maybe don't know you as well, I mean, I read one article that said you're solidly pro, uh, sorry, anti-abortion or pro-life and pro-woman's rights. And and they sort of saw that as, oh, hard to reconcile. You were leading a Me Too movement within the Southern Baptist Convention and really uh, raising questions there. Um, do you find that jarring position or, or how do people read you then in the public square? They seem, because people then go, oh, somebody's pro, oh, you must be in that box. But you seem to uh, challenge the boxes, if I put it that way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't fit into um, the pre-made boxes, I guess. Um, for me, it you know, it all comes down to human dignity. Um, my passion for the pro-life movement is because of my um, value of the dignity of the unborn child, as well as the dignity of the woman and the dignity of all of the people involved in in that one little person's life and the abuse issue is a, is a, another um, issue of, of human dignity where women have not been treated as um, full and equal image bearers of God. And, and you know, and of course, I also um, I, I'm very concerned about uh, about racism and uh, racial justice, which is another um, issue that is, has come to the forefront uh, in our in our country and I think in the world. And to me, these issues are all separated. Uh, and I I just I don't understand people who don't see them as connected. So um, I think we, we, we would love to find out a little bit more about your perspective on the, the context that you're operating in, especially in the States. So some of us that are watching from the other side of the pond, as it were, um, don't always get the nuances or the the different characters in play so we'd love to touch into that in a in a moment but I want to press into your literature I'm a, a English lit grad myself I'm a lover of fiction um, uh, and I, I'm just fascinated by uh, your stance around engaging and understanding literature as a way to engage and understand what it means to be human and I would love to understand a little bit more about your perspective on that um, and, and what you're trying to do with the books that you're writing and the comments that you're sharing. Well I mean there there is a lot of uh, research out there a lot of criticism I've even written a book uh, kind of on this topic but I really want to answer the question more personally and narratively. Um, I just, as I mentioned before, I just grew up loving books. I always had my nose in a book. I loved, I loved literature. I loved stories. So spending all those years being developed in that way, I think also tapped into my, maybe an innate uh, sense of, of compassion and uh, desire for justice that I have. Um, I have always had that sense as well. And so uh, for me, reading about literature teaches me about people and the world and and uh how they tick and the mistakes that they can make and we can all make well so i was raised in the baptist church and i was not a great reader as a child why do you think in those more conservative circles there is such a it's almost feels like a fear of literature or certainly an unease around it <laughs> yeah i think that there is you know i think there are at least two sort of major um components components of that this um, phenomenon. One is sort of the culture war model that, you know, develops a sort of us versus the world. Uh, and so we don't want to be infected, you know, a separatist fundamentalist strain, we don't want to be infected or influenced by the world. Uh, and so we don't read these things. And I think that's part of it. Um, I think that 
that component really is not that strong anymore and it's fading. I actually think that we're more influenced by a, a utilitarianism that says um, that, oh, well, I'm going to read, you know, theology and I'm going to read devotional books. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read this blog post so I can learn this thing. Um, but we think that art and literature isn't, doesn't have like immediate measurable payoffs. And so we just don't make time for them. They don't seem useful or practical enough for us. I think that's a reflection of the larger culture. And I think that's what we see primarily in um, you know, church circles that don't think that it's important to, to read literature or enjoy art. Um, and I, th I actually am less pessimistic than um, my what I said a few minutes ago. I think that we are seeing a change. I think that the digital age has so saturated people's minds with garbage and quick takes and just just so much uh i i think that people want to want something else they want richer experiences um they want uh they want more literature they want more art so well, maybe that's a cue to turn to your books and and the obvious one would be on reading well but i want to go somewhere else just first <laughs> even though i've read on reading well and i haven't read fierce convictions but I do love the Clapham sect and I'm really intrigued because again, that's, that's around a cultural engagement piece and, and looking at Hannah Moore. I'd love to just get more insights from you on how significant she was within that movement and in the UK. I actually discovered Hannah Moore during my research for my PhD dissertation. But of course, through all that, I learned that she was an abolitionist and a reformer and William Wilberforce's best friend and um, all of these things. And so, um, so really my love of literature uh, led me to this wonderful exemplary Christian woman of the 18th and 19th century who was engaging her culture through her literary craft um, and, and helped bring an end to slavery. Um, it was, it's a marvelous story and um, she provided a role model for me. One of the things we talk about is the, the importance of the breadth of the God story and the shrinking of that. And often we point to somebody like Wilberforce came uh, up to that era. There seemed to be a, a fullness to the, the God story that was told. And post that, there seemed to be this shrinking down to a much more individualized kind of salvation. And, and I guess tying back to the utilitarianism you were talking about, we identified that as one of the big cultural trends. And in some ways, we've made the the gospel story, a utilitarian story. It's really useful. It's individual. I'll take the bit that's good for me. It gets me the ticket to heaven. It's all about me. And we lose the larger cultural and the aesthetic and the importance of beauty and the importance of literature. And I guess, and that, I suppose it makes me ask, why was Hannah Moore and, and the Clapham sex so successful in what they did and was part of that, their engagement in literature and in capturing the imagination? It absolutely was a part of it. And even just going back to the name Clapham sect, um, that, you know, which, which we, we glossed over at first, they were a community. They were a, a body of believers and friends. They didn't all worship together. Uh, some of them were because they, where they lived or, um, you know, they just lived in different places, but they were evangelicals who believed together and who worked together, they collaborated and they had different gifts. Um, you know, Wilberforce was the parliamentarian, so he had that that platform, that role. Hannah Moore was the writer um, and they had, you know, bankers and financiers. They all brought their specific particular gifts to the table. They didn't, this is the part that, that really, you know, it, it just really, teaches me and encourages me they didn't expect everyone to be like themselves 
right? They weren't like, well, because this is my gift, this is what you should do. Um, they celebrated the diversity of their gifts and used those gifts. Um, and again, so Hannah Moore was, and I don't want to overstate her role. She was not, you know, she wasn't a Wilberforce. And uh, a part of that was because she, uh, most of that was because she was a woman. She didn't have, um, you know, so she wasn't able to vote. She wasn't able to, to be in public office. Uh, she wasn't even really an official member. Wilberforce actually didn't even believe that women should be members of abolitionist societies and Hannah Moore agreed. Uh, so she was sort of an unofficial member. And yet um, she used the gifts that, gifts that she had in writing literature and they supported and encouraged her. They were very strategic about it. Uh, they used other works of art like, you know, China um, and paintings um, to give visual representations of what slavery was about um, and, and because they knew that it wasn't just about changing the law, it was about changing the hearts and minds of people. Um, and so they worked together as a body um, and they were a real community. And there's so many uh, letters between many of them that exist. It's, it's really a joy to read their letters to one another and see um, just how, how much they they work together and encourage each other. Um, I was just thinking um, the Clapham sect was so timely. It came right at the moment when arguably society was ready to have that conversation and ready to make those changes. Um, uh, it, it came at a pivotal moment. And I we've been reflecting recently on um, the effect that the pandemic has had on our cultural conversations, our cultural imagination, the things that we're prepared to tolerate and the things that we're not. We've seen conversations that have nothing to do with COVID bubble up and emerge um, in different ways. Uh, the George Floyd murder last year um, sparked so many racial conversations that said what we've tolerated before, we will not tolerate moving forward. Um, similarly, there was a, a murder of a young woman that happened um, recently in the in in Britain that has raised similar conversations around gender violence. And um, I suppose my question is, how do we as the church, or how do we as Christian individuals, paying to each other's strengths? What are the opportunities that we could take at this moment that we could learn from people like the Clapham sect um, to to change hearts and minds? Um, without turning it too much into a utilitarian conversation, what can we take from that and from the experiences that they had that says we can shape and form culture uh, in this moment too? If we look back at the at the the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago or something like that, <laughs> um, in a way, the, the well, the Protestant Reformation was very much a, re a return, a recovery of the importance of individual faith, individual salvation, individual conscience and will uh, that had been lost in 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 uh, it, a, a church tradition that was all about well, you know, just it's it's all tradition, and if you're born this way, this is the, into the church, then that's what you are. Um, we may need to see a pendulum correction now at the end of the of this 500 year moment where we realize that we have reached the limits of what radical autonomy can can do for our culture and do for our lives and contribute to human flourishing uh, we need to recognize the role that community and culture plays in cultivating these things
I'm going to circle back around slightly on our notes for a minute, but then we'll, we'll undoubtedly jump off because uh, in on reading well was then the book that brought me into your world. Because um, again, it's cultural engagement. So this, I guess for me and perhaps for others, cultural engagement feels like what's current. So I love looking at the news and then even some of the currents below the news. But in this book, you were taking me, raised in a relatively conservative Baptist church, as I mentioned earlier, not big on literature, into those shaping texts that actually have influenced my life, even if I hadn't read them, because they influence our education curriculum and they influence so many people that read them. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, first, just maybe how you came to write the book and what's going on. So for, maybe for people you're looking at, at 10, a dozen maybe key texts out there and then coming through a lens of kind of virtue and character in that moment and saying what's going on in those stories, either positively or negatively, that we can learn from and engage with and maybe opening up a bridge for dialogue, or at least that's what I was taking from it. So how did, how did you come to write those that text on reading well? Well, I um, my the a book I wrote some years ago. Um, my first book was my literary memoir, "Booked Literature and the Soul of Me," and I gave sort of my personal story that I that I talked about briefly here about how books kind of brought me back to God because um, I lo always loved books, but I couldn't reconcile that with my love for God. And in that book, I was just kind of arguing like that you know, thinking of my students and and the church as an audience that we need to read widely. We need to read lots of books. And then in the meantime, um, you know, in the past few years, I do think, as I said before, people are reading a lot more. Uh, that's partly because of the digital age and there's such a you know, flood of, of reading material, whether it's good or bad. And so I was seeing everybody reading, but not very many reading well. And of course, you can go on Twitter and see how people really don't know what a tweet is saying or making an assumption or maybe a tweet is unclear and instead of asking what's really meant uh you know we get a whole day of tweet storms about something that could have just been resolved by asking a clarifying question so um so all that to say that um you know i saw a need to help people just read well and then the whole project just developed from there. I wasn't even planning on talking about the virtues at first. Um, and that was something my editor just you know, gave me a little nudge, like to talk about, you know, practices and habits kind of in uh, following the work of James K.A. Smith, who's been a big influence on my on my thinking. And uh, so then I just found myself doing all this research on the classical virtues and tying them together with works of literature. And so it's a little bit, you know, it's literary, it's half literary criticism and half moral philosophy. So a little bit for anybody who likes those two things. I, th I find it fascinating your comment on the close reading though. I, I suppose I've always, I've never known which one came first. My ability to read literature because I learned how to read the Bible text or my ability to read biblical text came because I'd learned how to read literature but I, I still remember my favorite module at the university was reading the bible as literature mm -hmm. and it just merged those two pieces together that said concentrate on the text what does the text actually say and what is the text asking of you we have certainly in our culture a reticence to accept that there is meaning in the words the meaning is inferred. The meaning meaning is is come comes to me as the reader rather than comes from the text, and I, I wonder what happens when we read the culture when we when we read people around us and says, is the meaning whatever I make of it, or can the meaning be intended as well? And then ultimately, what happens when we look to our author as God and say, is there meaning that was intended 
or is it only what the meaning is that I infer? Um, and what is our relationship between all the cultural texts that we find ourselves in and how do we read them well? You've just made the connection uh, among all the things we've been talking about. And this is why, for me, this project of, of sort of bringing literature to the church isn't just about me bringing the thing I love to church, although it is that. But, <laughs> but as you pointed out, I mean, we are people of the word. And so reading the Bible well requires the same skills that is that are is required in reading literature well and and they play off one another i mean a skill is a skill if i you know if i i practice if i exercise a particular muscle in my body you know one way it's going to work when i really need to use it to lift something heavy right and so if we're exercising our ability to read closely and to interpret well uh and to understand a text any text then we are learning how to do that better with the Bible. And so it's it's part of our, our heritage. It's part of our identity and character as people of the world, of the word, for whatever reason God created us uh, and chose to relate to us and reveal himself to us through the word. And so that's just a given. And so we cannot abandon or neglect our ability to understand and communicate through words. It's part of how God created us. And it just seems to me we've got this, I mean, you've done on reading well, but on watching well, on on listening well, you could have a, because it, it never ceases to amaze me when you come out of a movie or watch a TV series or a program or talk and people, what did you get from that? Or what was going on for you? Or how did you enjoy it? And it just seems to be no depth of engagement in, in mm -hmm. some of the characters and what's going on. I suppose the question that is like, where do people start? How do you engage? Like you've, you're, I think you're doing something currently on individual texts at a time. Are there some easier on ramps for people who want to get into kind of reading good literature and getting their heads around it? My biggest advice to people who are who are reading this kind of literature for the first time is to realize it's very, very different from reading a blog post or a newspaper article, and that it is supposed to be challenging. And it's supposed to require your time and attention. And you cannot read these things quickly. You cannot skim literature. You have to read it slowly and attentively. And I think, and, and, it, and it can be hard. And I think many times people pick up a book and they think, oh, it's so hard or, oh, I'm not getting anything out of it. And they put it down without realizing it's kind of supposed to be that way. Um, and so if you just slow down and read a little bit at a time. It is it is like having a workout with some muscles that you've not worked out in a while and to understand that that's okay and just keep working at it and you'll get better at it. So I've now figured out where I was going wrong. See, the lawyer in me always wants to skim read. That was the problem. <laughs> it is a challenge. It does take time and we have to we have to commit to engaging well. Um, now, I discovered last night as I tried to find my copy that my wife and I have decided somebody has our copy of uh, On Reading Well, but I do have um, the cultural engagement one beside me <laughs> um, because I want to kind of pivot maybe into both what you've written there, but also how you do this, uh, which is probably what really interests you and I as much as anything else. So um, you, you co-edited this book on, on how you do cultural engagement. Again, I wonder just maybe how you got to that, because this has this has just about everything, the little pictures that maybe people can't see. I mean, this is guns, sex, courts, uh, beginning and end of life, gender, you name it, everything's in here. Now you didn't, I'm not saying you wrote on all of those, but you, you co-edited into this space 
a crash course on contemporary issues. How did you find yourself editing that? We know that with any of these hot button issues, they just go out on the internet and they can find a person who says, this is the Christian view. This is the biblical view of X, Y, or Z. And they and these views can contradict one another. And so students and reader, anyone can go out there and handpick a so-called Christian, the Christian view on whatever topic and say, okay, this is the one without knowing how to interrogate it biblically, to examine it against scripture. So we chose a few issues. Um, there are others we probably could have and should have included. They, the issues change quickly. But we wanted to provide not only examination of these issues, but models through the reflection questions and the framework that we set up of how to think about all of these issues biblically, even when, or especially when it's Christians who are claiming this is the biblical view. So we do have some essays in there by people that we don't agree with. Um, some issues do have a, can have a range, I think, that the Bible is less clear on. Um, some, I think, the Bible is very clear, yet we have Christians saying that they there's another view. Um, and so we want to, we through this book, help people think biblically through uh, any anyone anyone's claims that this is the biblical way to look at this issue. You touched on it there. I mean, you brought in to dialogue people who I disagree with. I, I suspect you did. But so, I mean, how do you find that process and how important is it to have those views sitting side by side? Well, I think having them side by side is is the important thing, and um, and that's why you can you can compare. I mean, we we included you know in the chapter on sexuality, we included one of the most conservative voices in um, our uh, you know context, and one of the ones that's the most liberal, progressive, or whatever you want to call that. And there there they are side by side. We know that our students that we were writing this book for, or the you know general readers aren't necessarily going to go out on the internet and read them side by side. So we wanted to put them side by side uh, and then include the kinds of, of questions that go through and, and encourage readers to examine the arguments through the lens of, of the Bible. Uh, and in terms of the process, you know, I, I, I admit it's sort of an uneven book simply because we didn't want to set it up. Uh, there are a lot of books out there that will give four views on this or five views on this issue. We just invited the people that we know and who represent these issues to give us their views because we wanted to replicate as closely as possible what happens in real life when you just kind of go out on the internet and read things. Um, they aren't necessarily writing essays in response to one another. They're just giving their views and then we have to do the sort of comparative work. I find that that conversation around dialogue really interesting because certainly where I encounter you most of the time is on Twitter. And, um, and Twitter is renowned for its uh, calm and collective dialogue. Um, and I was just wondering, pretty sarcasm there, um, what does it look like to model um, how, to, how to disagree well, especially in public discourse? And what does it look like to be a Christian in uh, contested and polemic spaces like Twitter? Uh, you're active, uh, you engage well, you are the notorious KSP. Um, and I, I, I'm fascinated by that desire, like you just said in the book, to draw um, opposing views and to listen and to interrogate, but to respect. How does that work out in our public conversations? 
Well, you know, I, I do want to say, because people ask, I get this question a lot, like how I, I do this on Twitter, what you just described. Um, and I really, I, I think it comes from uh, my formation as a reader first, uh, you know, listening to different views through reading many books, uh, but also as a teacher in the classroom. I mean, as a teacher in the classroom, I'm ac accustomed to being around people who are wrong every day, all day long, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but <laughs> how, that's what I'm there for. I'm there to, you know, to instruct and enlighten and educate. And so imagine if I were in the classroom and I responded to a student saying something the way people respond to other people on Twitter. I mean, um, that is just not not how we should operate. Uh, and so it's not that I, you know, the, twi the Twitter is my classroom, but maybe it, maybe it is. Uh, but I think I treat it as my classroom, not only where I teach though, but where I can be the student as well. And so if someone says something that, you know, I think is off, I can ask, I can say, why would you say this? Or what do you mean by this? Um, to me, that is the simplest thing in the world. And I, I'm increasingly, I, you know, I know social media develops bad habits and there are lots of reasons why people act the way they do on social media, but I'm increasingly convinced that it, it's really not that hard. And um, unless you're trying to do something else like gain clicks, virtue signal or gain followers, um, it's a pretty basic human principle to just not be rude um, and to ask questions politely when you don't understand. Um, but we definitely, you know, people have forgotten that or they refuse to do that. And, uh, and I, you know, I was on a, on a podcast um, yesterday where someone was, was uh, expanding on this idea that I've had for a while as well. Um, that I think, you know, in, in some years, I don't know how long it will take when we have sort of gained a better understanding of digital media and its effects and how it works. I think we will look back in horror kind of at how we behaved and, and how uh, limitless we were with our, with our social media. I mean, an example I've used before is just like, we, we think in horror now of, of putting kids in automobiles without car seats and seat belts, right? Uh, we, we can't imagine a time when, when that w would be done. And, and I think in much larger terms, we'll look back at social media and think, wow, what were we doing? This is a, this is a, you know, a powerful, um, positive technology that can do much good, just like an automobile, right? But it's also dangerous and risky and we need to put in safeguards. But I just think we're, we're not in the, we're in the pre seatbelt stage here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to me though, because that sort of preempted the question I was about to ask, which is so many of my friends just don't want to be on Twitter because it's too argumentative, it's too shouty, it corrupts their soul. Um, and yet you are there and you are very present and you're very active. What's the redeeming quality of Twitter or what's the redemptive possibility of Twitter and those that engage there? Um, well, for me, you know, I, I don't, I, I do think it's, at this point, it's mainly destructive and deforming. Um, I stay on it because I really, truly feel for two reasons. I truly feel called to it as a ministry field, a mission field. I mean, if, if all the Christians left Twitter, what, what would what would happen? Right. Um, I mean, I even had a I, I had someone message me the other night to 
asked me why I was following a person who's very um, vile uh, and uh, does not treat people with human dignity. Uh, and I said, you know, I have a personal connection with this person. And if I abandon him out there, if I sever the connection, how much worse will he become? Right. I mean, we, we can drive these kinds of ideas and attitudes underground where they fester and get only worse. I mean, I think we're seeing the result of that um, in the rise of these insurrectionists. And so there, we, as Christians, we need to be present. Some of us need to be present there. That's one reason. And then for me personally, um, because of the work that I do, um, I'm what Cal Newport calls a knowledge worker, right? So I need to stay up to date. I need to know what's going on. And, and Twitter does that well for me. But I certainly, I think anyone who is considering going on or staying on needs to take a good assessment of the soul crushing and destroying effects that it has and, um, and not enter or remain lightly. Uh, one of the things um, we mentioned we were going to discuss earlier, and uh, you, you've talked about it throughout, is around this idea of human flourishing and human dignity. Um, and given that we're now on the social media conversation, I, a little bit of your journey over the last year or so, um, although actually it's, it's older than that, but you started at Liberty, uh, you're now at SBTS, um, and there's been a for the British uh, of our audience, they may not know some of, even have heard of Liberty University, Southern Baptist Convention and the context in which you're working. But when it comes to human flourishing and human dignity, power and abuse, there are some big conversations that your context are engaging in at the moment and some big stories that have happened. Talk us a little bit through how you've navigated some of that. Yeah, so just the broader context is that some of the biggest stories of um, sexual abuse within, you know, within the Protestant environment in our country right now uh, are some that I've had sort of, you know, a front row seat to. Um, I am a Southern Baptist and uh, two years ago in 2019, there was a, a tremendous um, uh study report from the Houston Chronicle undercover uh, uncovering um, just numerous instances of abuse and then cover up uh, by churches uh, of varying degrees of seriousness, hundreds and hundreds of them uh, within the denomination. So my own church denomination is undergoing kind of this reckoning of what, what to do um, and how to go forward and you know, and dealing with these situations from the past, we're grappling with how do we deal institutionally with sex abuse, with racism. I mean, our, our convention, my denomination was was founded um, to support slavery. Um, it's repented of it, but those roots are, you know, are still there. Uh, and so it's not pleasant or fun, especially for someone like me who has, you know, my strongest gift is prophecy. And, uh, you know, I, I constantly have this prophetic voice. Uh, and yet I need to rein it in at times because um, I do love the church and I love my denomination and I want the best for it. And, you know, it's just a tension that I have to navigate all the time is, is like if I, you know, is to love the church well, um, which always means, you know, speaking the truth, but also speaking the truth in such a way that um, that we can bring about change because people do know it's done in love. Um, and we aren't going to change, you know, change people if we lose them, 
you know, again, if we push them underground or push them away. So again, I think that's maybe one of the reasons that um, I certainly am interested is because of the power of institutions. So Andy Crouch or James Hunter and people who've looked at culture would talk about that. Um, and our, my love and our love is a project of the church. But, and the easy thing to do sometimes this moment is say, look, the church is a mess in certain areas. There's real problems and to deconstruct. And I think there's a part that needs to be done and we need to push back in. I think, again, you've helped someone like me look at how we navigate. How do you ask the questions? Not just do a blanket defense, but at the same time, not abandon ship and just say, well, look, the church is a goner. Let's be done with it. Because ultimately, institutions are incredibly important in culture and the church mm -hmm. is an institution. Uh, there's lots probably more we could say about that. But I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to understand more about how you support that institution and do uh, while holding up. I want to say the word mirror, but Joe's going to mock me again in my Irish accent, yeah, holding up the reflective uh, pushback into the church at the same time. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely hard. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do take solace in, in kind of a reality check. Like, of course, every church, every denomination, they're all dealing with these things. This is a reflection of the culture. It's a reflection of human nature where the grass is not going to be greener. I don't think any other place. And I also, um, you know, I believe in God's providence. Um, and so I look at, you know, at the, the family that God shows me to be born into and the, and the, and the experiences that I've had, the church background, um, you know, there, certainly I make choices um, but he also has brought me here. And so I need, if he needs me to leave anything like, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm, you know, even just transitioning from one um, educational institution to another, I believe was clearly um, the call of God. Um, I need to follow the clear leading um, that he gives through circumstances through affirmation through calling um through what's going on in the body right it's not just about me um it's you know that it's like a macedonian call right it's like someone is calling you and saying please help and so that's where i'm going to go um and so that's where i am yeah and it brings us back around to this that the being human has to be in community it's one of the things we touched on there at the start wasn't it this is in an individual and profoundly expressively individual culture the church roots us back into community and makes us accountable within the community setting i've got i'm conscious of time the last question the last thing i'd love to ask what do you see as the most significant kind of cultural clashes and i'm not saying definitively just from where you're seated right now what's what's coming down the tracks that you're going I need to be alert to and, and know about that as, as a, somebody who works in the knowledge economy. Um, well, I think that uh, I think the issue we're really, really dealing with, with I mean, we just had this horrible uh, shooting um, in uh, in America of, you know, by a young man um, of, you know, of uh, workers in um, in spas and there are so many issues at play there, uh, you know, his Southern Baptist connection, the race of the victims, his race, all of the issues that we've been wrestling with for the past few years have kind of, of converged in this one incident. And of course, we have no idea all of the things that were at play, but this incident is offers us an opportunity to think about how, how all of these things connect with one another. Um, and it's, it's just one more crisis, I think, in a series of crises, crises uh, around ultimately the issues of human dignity, 
um, of and and how we are failing to disciple um, the church in not just in human dignity theoretically we're so good at that but when it comes down to the real people in front of us and the real struggles of those people and the real struggles of ourselves because this young man was just awash in guilt and shame apparently um he had dignity as well that he was not understanding wow we just had a session as a team earlier and we were just talking about the importance in relation to this project the being human project of rooting this that the ideas are often there but the ability to work that out to incarnate that to embed that into a community to disciple that through what does human flourishing look like isn't isn't being done or that that's the area that people are saying that's what this project if it's going to succeed needs to do rather than just dealing the abstract and in the theoretical so you've landed that i'm going to hand the joe to, to wrap us up or maybe ask a last question then I, i'm conscious yeah. of time I, well i was just reflecting on, on what you were just talking about that cultural story that you you guys are, are living in the states at the moment and i've just written a piece on um a TV program called It's a Sin, written by Russell T. Davis. I think it's coming over to the States at the moment. Um, and the the cycle of sin and shame that just perpetuates. Um, you commit a sin, you are ashamed of it. It, it forces the sense of judgment, of guilt and identity and wrestling, and it just spirals until everybody is consumed by it. Um, but there's this one character that comes in and shows mercy every to everyone who... Um, is wrestling with their own shame and coming to terms with their own sin and expecting judgment from everybody else and defensive in, in all of those places and yet encounters mercy. Mm. Um, and what what have we done as a, a community to forget the gift of mercy? Um, how do we show mercy and compassion more readily? Um, but what does that mean about being honest about our own sin and our own shame? Uh, the human condition, so that actually we acknowledge the dignity uh, and the, the possibility, the redemptive possibility of human flourishing for others as well. And it's one of the things that I'm wrestling with because we see it in text and we see it in culture. Um, so what is it that we can do as disciples to bring that into our space? Wonderful. Well, look, Karen, I, I, I'm looking at your website, karenswallowprior.com, because I've got some of your books, as I've mentioned. Um, people can find out more about you there. Is there anything right now that you want to tell us about that people uh, should be looking at or reading or seeing where you are? Well, I just would encourage them to look at the series of classics that I'm editing. And um, I don't know how available they are across the world, but I, I'm sure that they're accessible in some way. And uh, if you want to dip into literature, um, these books are for you. Great. I'm seeing Sense and Sensibility in there, which my daughters love, Jane Eyre and Frankenstein and a few others, uh, as well as the ones that we've mentioned. So KarenSwallowPrior.com. Karen, we have loved following you. You're on social media. Um, that's a great place to follow and just to see how to navigate this space. I know your journey, like all of us, but we both look towards you for a model as to how to do that well, to engage in our culture, to take it seriously, but to articulate the God story and to do that in a, in a human way that recognizes the dignity of others and wants to lead towards flourishing. So thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. More information about Karen, her latest books and work can be found in today's show notes. And for more information about Being Human, visit beinghumanproject.co.uk where you can find out all about what we're up to, check out the previous seasons from the Being Human podcast, 
articles, resources, and what's coming next. Don't forget to subscribe to Being Human wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, take care and God bless. Hold up. 